Hey everyone, we're back with another edition of the Teddy Talk podcast. This one falls more in the lessons in life than leadership category, but of course uh, the two aren't that far apart in my world. So I had a chance to sit down with two wonderful humans who also happen to be gifted medical professionals with backgrounds in complementary medicine, which means training in both Eastern, Western, and holistic modalities. They are Dr. Alona Pulday and Dr. Matt Letterman, and it turns out, of course, that they're married to each other as well. So I first became aware of them through their presence in a documentary on plant-based diets called Forks Over Knives. Some of you may have seen it. It's a wonderful documentary showing the benefits, uh, scientific background and of uh, having a plant-based diet. Some years later, I was introduced to them personally by my pals at Whole Foods Market, and that was at the time that Alona and Matt were just opening some wellness and medical centers for Whole Foods team members and their families. I was helping them on the leadership side of things while immensely enjoying our concurrent chats about health, nutrition, and the benefits of a plant-based diet, which, as those of you who know me well uh, will appreciate, I am deeply committed to. So you'll hear their story, not only of their journey into complementary medicine, but also how that has evolved into a search for joy from the inside out. So as they say, sit back and enjoy and listen to the first ever Teddy Talk podcast with two folks at once. Hi, everybody. This is Teddy Tannenbaum with another edition of the Teddy Talk podcast. Meetings with Remarkable People, Lessons in Leadership and Life. And today I'm delighted to be with Dr. Matt Letterman and Dr. Alona Pulday. I first met these docs when they joined forces with Whole Foods Market to create a medical and wellness center for Whole Foods members, uh, team members and their families. And we had a chance to work together and I've learned a ton from them. So I thought this would be a good opportunity for uh, all of you to learn something from them as well. They are... Matt and Alona are very much on the cutting edge of complementary medicine and natural healing and nutritional healing. So I want to explore that with them, but I thought we'd start. Matt, Alona, welcome. Thanks for coming here. Thanks Appreciate for having it. us. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. This is very cool. So by way of introduction, why don't you tell the audience a little about your backgrounds and uh, kind of what your education training and how you got here. Um, so I... Uh, started wanting on the path to wanting to be a conventional medical doctor, very excited to do that on the conventional path to do that. And then became really disillusioned along the way. Um, my goal in all of that was to really help people and make people's make a difference in people's lives, a positive difference. And, um, the disillusionment came when I just kind of realized that medicine had become a business and was functioning poorly at that too, you know, where it became about pills and procedures and quick fixes and, um, not really getting to know people. You know, when I envisioned being a doctor, it was that famous Norman Rockwell, you know, doctor with stethoscope on, on the little girl's doll and, you know, connecting with people that was important. And that wasn't, didn't seem to be happening very often. Um, and, and medicine didn't seem to really positively impact people in a way that brought them more joy or quality of life. Um, it was uh, a band-aid approach. And so I, um, as I was kind of coming to that conclusion and wondering what I was going to do in life, I happened upon acupuncture and Chinese medicine and fell in love with the philosophy because the philosophy is a very comprehensive philosophy. It's about the person as an individual, as a whole, and it really resonated with me. And so I did, I went into Chinese medicine and in that path, my mentor was a physician who trained in China and her philosophy was you have to know East and Western medicine to be a, a good provider. And so I eventually made my way back to medical school and, um, and in medical school, I had my second, um, biggest, uh, disillusionment. And this one was significantly more personal. I lost my dad. He passed away from a sudden heart attack mm -hmm. 
And for me, um, it was kind of a collapse of my professional world because I couldn't piece together what happened, why, you know, I had Chinese medicine background. I had a little bit of Western medicine background at that point and couldn't figure out what had caused him to just collapse and, and die of a heart attack. And, um, along that path, I met Matt, which, uh, was, and you can see her smiling while she <laughs> says that folks, <laughs> which was fantastic for me not only in my professional life, but in my personal life as well. Um, and he was exploring the world of nutrition and lifestyle medicine and introduced me to, um, that philosophy and to, you know, doctors McDougall and Esselstyn and Campbell and Furman. And, um, and I started, I got really excited because I started to see, you know, how, I mean, you always hear about food being important and, you know, food having impact and healthy foods and eating healthy, but to see how impactful it was, we would go to uh, Dr. McDougall's 10-day immersions. And in 10 days, what he was able to do with patients, I couldn't do in a lifetime of conventional medicine. And so I was sold and very excited to um, practice that medicine. And so Matt and I went into practice together. Excellent. So you have a complementary medicine background then? I do. Right. Excellent. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. All right. Matt? So um, I started um, not really knowing what direction I was going to go in. I just was, my dad was a, a physician, and that's sort of how I grew up knowing um, that it was pretty cool that, you know, what he could do and how he could help people. Um, so I said, I'd like to know that. And I also want to, you know, be able to provide for my family and sort of that. I was always looking for that sure thing. Like if I work hard, I'm going to, this is going to happen. I didn't have any, I didn't really have to gamble, you know, so I, but I, in hindsight now, I did whatever I had to, to get the best grades. I took the classes that I would get the best grades in, not necessarily what would help me, you know, stuff I was necessarily interested in learning in or learning about. Right. So I got really good grades. I got good test scores. I got into medical school and then I got into medical school and I was like, I don't really like this that much, <laughs> but I didn't really know what else I could do. And I have now loans and, um, but I thought it would get better when I became, um, a resident and then I became a resident. I'm like, oh, I still don't like this, you know, and I didn't like it because it wasn't really, I didn't see, feel the meaning and purpose that usually drives me. Um, so I was fighting with patients to take medications that were making them feel lousy. It wasn't helping them and I didn't have anything else to give them. So I was like, take them and they wouldn't take them. And I'd say lose weight and they wouldn't lose weight. And I'd say, you know, so it was just, it was just constantly every patient after patient was depressing. Right. And we would joke around with the other residents, I remember, and it would be like, well, you know, so-and-so is back with this. You know, well, did you give this pill? And we're like, I tried that last week. What about this one? Oh, well, we haven't tried that yet. Let's throw that out. And so we, you know, it was almost like kicking the can down the road, right? And you see the next page. So it was pretty, it was um, just not rewarding at all. And um, personally, in my own life, I was not very healthy. I ate terrible fast food all the time, drank a lot. Um, and just, just was not healthy. And at one point, um, I, you know, sort of found a, a book cause I was trying to use up a Barnes and Noble gift card that was about to expire. And I found this book and I was, wow, this book really speaks to me it's saying some pretty interesting things about if you, if you do this, if you change sort of your lifestyle and your, your diet around all of a sudden, you know, you're going to have these results. And I said, it almost sounds ridiculous, but it sounds pretty impressive if it's true. So I did it to try and prove it wrong because that's sort of how I think. I'm going to go 110%. And then if it doesn't work, I can go back to my old way. And this book was telling me to be, remember halfway through, I'm like, oh my God, they're going to tell me to be vegan. You know, and I was like, that's crazy. You know, and I'm the guy that used to go out with vegan friends for lunch and I go home and eat a burger because I feel like I wasn't full. In my head, I just wasn't full. Right. So, um, I thought this was crazy, but I, and I didn't know how to be vegan. So I had beans and rice for like a week and I felt fantastic after the week and I had, stomach issues and heartburn and irritable bowel, all sorts of just little things that all of a sudden I was like, wow, I feel actually better. But I was like this, I can't eat rice and beans for the rest of my, you know, I'm not, where's my calcium? Where's my protein? So I learned about that. And I said, well, actually there's a lot of calcium and protein in, you know, it's actually very healthy. So I said, well, I can't use that to get out of this crazy diet. So then I said, well, I can't make it taste good. Who can live off rice and beans? 
So I got a vegan cookbook and I remember trying to make, I think it was vegan French toast or something. And by the time finding the ingredients at Whole Foods, which I didn't really shop in before, I was like, this is, it took me like five hours to shop and another 10 hours to make French toast, but I got it, you know? And I was like, this is pretty good. So then I said, well, I don't really have any excuses not to eat this way, right? It's, I feel better. It's really healthy. It actually tastes pretty good if I can try it. So now I had no more excuses. I, I did it. And I was doing it personally for a while, but I was still unhappy with my work. I was working um, and uh, as a hospitalist. And I said, this is, I was going to go into palliative care. Mm-hmm. And I actually had a palliative care fellowship set up because this is, this is the area where you actually are working with patients, where something medicine can actually help them. It's great at killing pain and you have time to talk to people and you can support the family. I knew that was at least something I could do where I had some meaning and purpose. But um, actually, my stepmother said to me, Matt, you know, you can, you know, it's great that you're helping people when they're about to die, but with this diet and lifestyle stuff that you're making the family sort of think about, why don't you do that with other people too? And you can help them before they're about to die. And I said, well, that's a good idea, but I have no idea how to do it, right? How to make a living doing this. So I emailed all the doctors that I'd just been reading about. And I said, you know, how can I do this? And I want to get a job. And they're like, well, we can't hire you, but we can work with you and teach you sort of what we do. And that's where John McDougal said, why don't you come down and work with me and see what I do. And I'd spend time with him. And I had the most amazing experience with him. One guy came in and he had such bad arthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, that he he told me a story about how he couldn't, um, he in the morning he'd get up and he would take his medication, but he'd be so in so much pain that he couldn't move. He'd have to wait for like an hour or two for the medicine to kick in. But he threw up on himself and he couldn't get up to clean himself until the medicine kicked in. And by the end of that week, he was doing laps around the pool and it was, you know, decreased. I mean, it was just, you know, people that couldn't open a soda can at the beginning would come in and say, look what I can do at the end of the week. And we take for granted opening a soda can. Actually, I think it was a water bottle, not a soda can. But um, anyway, the point was it was amazing, amazing results. So, so. I said, we got to do this for a living. I, he showed us how to sort of practice this way and take people off medications, which we never were taught how to do. In med- you only add medication, right. right? If you take them off, you can get sued, right? So let's keep them on, add more pills, right. maybe change the pills. So once he taught us that, we said, well, we got to open up our own clinic doing this. And that's where we had sort of um, a concierge clinic where we would see patients for two hours, sometimes four hours, where they'd sp- you'd basically do everything. We'd teach them, take them shopping, Take so them the off whole the, the whole the whole thing, right? And then you know we'd follow up with them and stay in touch. But it was you couldn't help that many people, right? You only had so much time, um, and these were long and sort of invest. It wasn't financially the best way to spend you know hours being taught by doctors how to eat, right? Um, but that's what they needed. So um, anyway, we we're trying to figure out the right business model. But at the same time, around that time, um, forks over knives. Um, we got in touch with Brian Wendell. Right. And that's where I first, uh, before I met you guys personally, that's where I first saw you was in that documentary, Forks Over Knives. Okay. okay. Before we go there, yeah. I'm curious. You mentioned a book that you read. What was the name of that book? There was, um, I think it was called Easy Way to Lose Weight. It was um, a whole series of books by a guy, Easy Way to Stop Drinking, Easy Way to Stop Smoking, Easy Way to Lose Weight, a guy in the UK named Alan Carr. Okay. And it was a really interesting, so he had more of a natural hygiene bend Mm -hmm. on the book, but the bottom line was, you know, sort of, there was a cognitive shift and, and then also changing the foods that you're eating, but it happened and it worked best. It's actually the program we tell everybody to do for stopping smoking and stopping drinking too. So anyway, that was pretty impressive. Yeah. It just got us reading. Yeah. It's, you know, in my own experience on, on some of my earlier path, I would, I was a reader also, right? Looking mm-hmm. for information. I'd read a book. And if I was inspired by the book, I'd look in the bibliography mm-hmm. and I'd get all those books and I'd mm-hmm. leaf through them. Okay. I can just pick right. these two or three and I'd read those. And I'd read those bibliographies right. and then at least down a path, yeah. you make better choices. He had a book, so, uh, the easy way to fly for people that were afraid of flying. I remember reading that and they're like, so I don't know who it was. Like, You're not afraid to fly. I'm like, yeah, but I'm reading through all of his, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, just to get to you know, understand what he's in. That's sort of the way I think about things. Right. Like and, that, and that was his model, right? Some, some way to break it down to make it easy for you to do something. Right. Right. Appetite. So it was, it was Dr. McDougall that was your kind of mentor going into this. Yes. So forks over knives. Let's spend a little time just on make it, yeah. I mean, Dr. McDougall was absolutely amazing. Like when I was learning with him, he would, I would, he would say, I would ask him a question. He would say, well, why don't you go look at, figure that out. 
and then come back and tell me what you learned. So I'd come back and I'd say, well, I found this and you were saying this, I couldn't remember. And he'd say, go find this book. It's on page 98. And I'd, I'd go find it. I'm sure if it was there. And I'd say, how do you do that? You know, but he had that brain. He was that doctor with the scientific studies. And he would say, you know, I would look at that time. I was looking at the citations and looking at the articles, right. you know, whether it was on protein and, you know, essential amino acids. And it was just everything he said. I, I mean, he had that memory that I can only wish to retain 10% of what he was able to. But that was his, yeah. that was his gift. Yeah. Steel trap. Yeah. But to do something, his wife said that when uh, Mary, who said as he was learning in the library, he would come home. He said, oh, now we got to get rid of milk. You know, and then he, you know, weeks later, oh, we got to get rid of fish now. You know, because he was learning and he would keep changing their. I love it. it I love it. So, so the, uh, so we got a complimentary medicine background and we got this life changing vegan French toast period of time. (laughs) And it's like, all of a sudden it's like, here's two two trained medical professionals, both disillusioned with the medical system and then finding kind of a portal out, which became a portal into something else, of course. Forks over knives. Tell me about that. How did you guys get connected with that? Actually through Dr. McDougal. (laughs) Um, He connected us with Brian Wendell, who was the executive producer for Forks Over Knives. Mm -hmm. And they reached out to us to kind of learn a little bit more about what we do in our clinic. And... Yeah, I said they're trying to do a documentary about getting this diet out to people, help people, you know, make some changes and and inspire them. So he said, "Would you be willing to see patients in your clinic and and we'll film it?" And 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 you guys were clearly the the next generation in that documentary, right? <laughs> Everyone had been around for a while, yeah. But you guys were fresh faced and young and just like you know going for it. Yeah. I, a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of people were interested in it. But we were trying to make, I think, that's what, I think that's why Dr. McDougall connected us, that we were trying to make uh, a living doing this and make this right. our practice versus just something we did at home. Right. So that, that evolved and you had this clinic and that was in LA? Yeah. Yes. And you were seeing patients two hours, four hours at a time. <laughs> the business model is a little difficult, <laughs> right? Yeah. But, uh, and, that, uh, and then you got connected up with Whole Foods. Right. Tell us about that. Yes, yeah, so um, we we had a lot of patients. We had patients come in, and they're like, you know, if you could just kind of put the, wrap all this information together, so that we have references and a resource that we can use. And um, so we wrote uh, what we had intended to be a pamphlet for our patients, and it just kind of went through the dietary philosophy and some tips and strategies and what we found helped work and what has worked with some of the patients that we were um, uh, working with and some recipes. And it was on the tale of um, Forks Over Knives where we had met, you know, the greats, Campbell and Esselstyn, we knew McDougal. And so they were super kind enough to endorse our book. Um, And we happened to be in a weekend study, advanced weekend study at uh, McDougal's and John Mackey from Whole Foods Market was there. And Matt, you want to tell them <laughs> how you met him? <laughs> yes, so we had our book, and I was giving it to people that were, you know, that just is, hey, this is who are trying to network and make connections around different people in the field. And and I saw John get up and leave at, an, at sort of a break, and I'm following him. Everybody's talking to him and trying to connect with him. So by the time I got to him, he was right about to go into the bathroom. <laughs> So I said, hey, here's our book. I just, I think it really connects to what you've been trying to do and what you're, you're doing. And it's a lot of people you've been talking to already. So, so I handed it to him and he was like, I got to go to the bathroom. You know, so he took it. And, so I didn't think anything of it. Then the next morning he came up to me and said, I read half your book last night. And in there you wrote that you want to have, make, make medical centers that treat patients this way. And he goes, that's, that's your dream and have those all around the world. And he said, that's my dream too. Let's talk. And we talked over, we met at lunch and then, you know, went down and met with him in Austin and decided to work together and try and create centers that do this. And that's where I met you guys originally. Yes. In the, in those centers. Mm-hmm. And we had a, a, a hell of a good time <laughs> putting those together, right? Yeah. It was like, here's, here's this idea of this different kind of medical and wellness center that was uh, well-funded, right? That wasn't uh, much of an issue. 
and it was trying to change the way people behaved and uh, and and based on that behavior change the way they eat and therefore get better health outcomes it was also launching a business so it was like you know that was that was an interesting road i uh i i, I would dare to say that we we all learned a lot from each other during that time <laughs> right it was great fun and so now and leading and leading people we learn i mean Doctors think they lead people, but they basically just boss people around, right? That's, which is very different than trying to lead and inspire a group, right? So that was, that was another piece. So it's not only starting a business and doing this really, you know, going against the grain from the conventional practice of medicine, but also leading people instead of bossing people. Right. And that's where the work that we did together was talking about leadership and self-awareness. Yeah. And I, I appreciated you guys because you guys bought right into mm -hmm. the model I was working with. And I, of course, being a, uh, I don't know. When I was younger, it was called being a picky eater. Now it's called health conscious. So I've 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 morphed because the times have changed. So it was an interesting intersection when we met. Tell me about those centers. What, where uh, I know there was one in in Glendale initially, Glendale, California, uh, for the whole team, Whole Foods team members and their families in that Southern Pacific region, and then there was one in Austin next to the flagship store and the uh, the global offices. Uh, Tell me about, about those, uh, those clinics and how they're doing. Well, the, the centers were all focused on two sort of big areas initially. One was to help people change their diet and lifestyle to get them healthier and sort of the foundation of conventional treatment would be the diet and lifestyle piece. And then you add on medication as needed. The other piece was to protect patients again, against all the unnecessary care that's happening out there. Um, so, unnecessary bypass surgery, unnecessary back surgeries, all the medications that don't have the benefits patients believe they do. Um, so that was a big piece too, was trying to help people balance what's evidence-based as well as make the diet and lifestyle change. I think that was one of the most exciting things for me is the empowerment that came with informed decision-making. And so, you know, when Sometimes in the conventional medical world, people get caught in, this is my destiny, I'm fated, this is hereditary, you know, I can't escape it. And it's, it creates this notion of, of helplessness in their own health dynamic. And giving patients a choice, you know, there and, and, and shared decision making. And, um, you know, it's, you have the opportunity to make a change in your health history. And this is how you can do it. And you can take a hundred percent leap. You can take a 50% leap, you know, and depending on how much you do is the, it will impact the results that you see, but you can see results on this continuum of health. And, um, and seeing the empowerment that that gives patients, oh, I can actually cure diabetes. I can actually cure heart disease. I don't have to go down the same path that my parents and grandparents went. Um, that was really very cool. Right. So this empowerment model is very much interesting enough. That's very much the whole foods model with team members is to empower the team members deeper into the organization so they make better choices and have control over their destiny. So you're, you were challenging your patients to not be dependent as much on the doctor to be the wise, all-knowing medical professional, but take responsibility saying, hey, if you try this, you may see this outcome and, and offer them that opportunity. It also sounds like you meet people where they are, right? It's not like all or nothing. Where are you now? Let's start there. And what's the next step for you? And so I'm curious, what's, tell us some of the, of the, uh, I guess, success stories or things you observed in some of the patients and the clients. Yeah, I think um, some of the, the bigger things were, you know, what patients called effortless weight loss after struggling with weight for so long, um, where they had, you know, a plethora of different foods that they could eat. It wasn't about <clears throat> calorie counting or portion control or deprivation or using willpower, which are totally novel co concepts when you're dealing with making dietary nutrition changes. Um, there were, you know, the patients that were able to get off medications for diabetes and high blood pressure and high cholesterol. And um, one of the most impactful stories that success stories that I have is actually a more personal one with my aunt. 
Um, and it was, she had a heart attack and she called my, she learned that she had two blocked arteries. One was 90% blocked. The other was 70% blocked. And, um, the 90% one, they stented in the hospital after a heart attack. The 70% one, they were to stent three weeks later. And so my aunt, who had been very resistant to hearing about nutrition and lifestyle change, called us up and said, okay, now I'll do anything you tell me. Like, what is it that I need to do? So we actually sent my mother, who's a really great cook and very much into, had learned about the philosophy and had incorporated it into her own life, sent her to my aunt's house for two weeks. And my aunt, my mom cooked for her and, you know, prepared the food and was with her for two weeks. And then she went in um, to see her doctor a week before the stent was supposed to be placed. And she's in the the hospital room and my uncle and my mother are in the waiting room and they see doc, you know, nurses flying by with machines and um, and my uncle thought she had another heart attack there. I mean, he started panicking and he pulled one of the nurses aside and he's like, what is going on? And the nurse said, well, you know, we, we are, we're really checking because we went back in and after two weeks, right, we checked and her, her um, blockage went from 70 to 40% in two weeks. And they didn't believe it. That's not supposed to happen. And no, right? <laughs> and so the doctor said, you know, we're not going to, we don't need to stent now. We, whatever you're doing, do what you're doing. Just keep doing that and come back and see me in a couple more weeks, you know, but um, that ability to, ch- and my aunt was just floored. My uncle was floored. You know, they, like, how do you not sell somebody on that life changing yeah. experience? Yeah. These, uh, people will rarely change until the pain of not changing is greater <laughs> than the pain of changing. That right. is very true. Isn't that? So tell us a little about the, uh, the protocols, you know, for someone who's starting out right? Who's maybe eating a conventional American diet, which, you know, even as I say that, I think, oh my God, do people still do that? But yes, they do. Uh, uh, it's funny. People always ask for evidence to change their diet to a plant-based diet. And I say, what evidence there is, to, is there to eat the American diet? You know, <laughs> if you're looking for evidence, there is none to eat that. In fact, there's a lot of evidence that you shouldn't be eating that. So if, even if you're not going to do the plant-based diet, stop doing the American diet. <laughs> Change, yeah, change. <laughs> so, so that's sort of our is like, hey, how can we get like some basic things? We talk about like the, the key healthy ingredients or the life promoting things are fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, and some nuts and seeds. So eat as much as you can from those areas or make dishes using those as your ingredients as much as possible. And minimize or if you choose to eliminate you know, the added oils and the added sugars and the processed foods and the animal products. And if you use animal products, you know, use it as a condiment, you know, use it as, you know, on, on the high, on the holidays where you're feasting, you know, and, but don't make every day a feast. Right. So, you know, I, I, uh, I'm kind of a, I have an orientation towards the magic bullet theory, right? It's like part of me just wants to know what's the, What's the secret, right? Is there is there a one thing? Is there got one? You got it. <laughs> I've been waiting. You're no. gonna love. You're gonna love it. There is no secret. Oh, man. <laughs> there is no. Everybody's looking for the magic bullet. There is none. There's none because it's so much more complicated. You know, we're we are such complex, you know, beings. I mean, it's just, there is so much. And It's not just that's what got us to back out to where we are today because we were so hyper focused on nutrition, right. you know, and some of the lifestyle stuff, and even that's not. You know, that's not, and my guess is where we are today, you know, in 10, 20 years, that's going to continue to grow and blossom. Right. But there's, that's the point yeah. is that you're looking for the one thing. And the fact that you're, that's what you're trying to find is why you're in the problem, why you have this problem to begin with. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. There's, especially the part about the complexity and each person's unique and each person's different. Right. right? I have, you know, I'm, I'm very much in, uh, you know, health oriented, have been for a long time. And I find like-minded people and I, in, I interact with them. We talk about it all the time. So well, what do you notice, right? I went through a, a phase, I'm still pretty much in a phase where I'll do a blood test every three months mm-hmm. and I'll experiment in the intervening period to see what's working, what's not working and what, what the effect is. 
And then I'll talk to someone else and they'll do something similar and have a different experience with something different, have a similar experience. Right. I go, okay, it's a very complex thing. It's very individual. But it also tells me that this thing of, of evolution, right? What, you know, the old saying, uh, what got you here won't get you there, hmm. right? So we're here today with what we've learned up to this point, And now we're exploring what's next. But I like appreciate that when you say that, hey, 10 years from now, we may think that what we're doing now, which is so cutting edge today, maybe now that's really wasn't it. It's there's a next level of evolution. Right. To think that that's to think that that's not going to happen is almost silly, right? Because that that's always happens. How many things do we think we were so sure of before, you know, 10, 20 years ago that were like, well, that was silly. You know, why were we doing that? Or that actually isn't true. You know, so we have to, we can't be so um, naive to think that that's not going to continue to happen. Yeah. And so being open is helpful, but having healthy level of skepticism is important too, right? So you're sort of balancing, you know, you don't just sort of, you know, fly in the wind, right. just, you know, which is an excuse to do whatever you want, essentially. Right. Whereas we call them now flexitarians. <laughs> 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 you can do whatever you want. I'm a flexitarian. Right. Right. I apologize. You're probably hearing the noise of my daughters upstairs banging doors and Just checking check. in. Yeah. <laughs> Cute as can be. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. And I think that part of that is also the evolution of growth, you know, to think that we have it all figured out, even if we use some of, you know, I think what we found is we've used, we're using a lot of what we have used over the last 10 years, but have grown to include so much more. Um, and, and that's how a lot of that process has evolved for us. Um, and that's been really exciting too. Yeah. yeah. You both mentioned in your opening remarks, something about, uh, your background with your medical conventional medical training, but also about bringing joy to people. So I'm, I want to explore that a little bit and, uh, kind of what's, what's current, what's going on today for you guys. Yeah. I want to read a. A quote that I like, but it was, um, patients see doctors because of anxiety, while doctors see patients because of disease. And therein lies the problem. Uh, there lies the problem between the two. And I love, I love that because to me, patients just want to feel better and be happier. Right. And doctors, you know, see how can we fix you? Right. What's, what's wrong with you and let's fix it. And I think you're, you're just like passing each other part, you know, to me, what I realize is patients want to be heard and just, and I'm learning that just being heard is therapeutic. In fact, just being heard allows the patient to sort of dig their way out. So of, of whatever is in their life that's challenging to them in that moment, right? So I find that before I was like, I know you got to make this diet change to reverse your diabetes, but that's only part of the problem. The big problem is what is in this patient's life that's preventing them from doing that. And to me, that's, that's where all of a sudden there's, there's so much more that as doctors, we don't think is part of the job. When in fact, that is the job is figuring out how to hear that patient, how to help that patient sort of dig out of where they are enough to either decide I'm not ready to make a diet change or I, I, you know, whatever's going on, let them lead you. And I think, and that's where we're sort of have shifted because when we first started, it was like, how do we get everybody to make this diet change? We know it's going to help them. And there's no question, right? If everybody ate a plant-based diet, not necessarily hundred percent, they don't have to be vegan. They will be healthier, right? There's just no question in my, in my mind. And if everybody exercised more, they would be healthier. And everybody was a little less stressed. They would be healthier, right? That's no, that, right, like no to me, brain. it's not like you're trying to find the seek the magic pill. Right? It's almost like, what's the pill that's going to cure them? We know the treatment. How do you get them to do the treatment? And how do you get them to do that treatment for the rest of their lives in a way that they feel happy doing it? That's to me, and each person, that's where the difference is. It's not whether or not, you know, vegetables are going to help you, Teddy. It's that, you know, what, what is preventing you from eating vegetables if you weren't eating them? And how can, and that's going to be different for you and every single patient. So you guys shifted from trying to change behavior to try and change belief and have belief change, change behavior. Yeah. Trying to change belief and trying to understand right. patients' beliefs and what is motivating the patient's behavior. Cause a lot of times they're not even aware of it, right? They just have these feelings and sensations and they do things or don't do things. It's almost like, 
you know, go towards pleasure, avoid pain, right. conserve energy, right? <clears throat> sort of like the, the, um, pleasure the pleasure trap by yes. Doug Lyle, right? He talks about that a lot. But it's like, if you could understand what sort of below that, what sort of what needs you're trying to meet, um, by doing or not doing something, all of a sudden you have this greater clarity that you didn't have before. And then you can say, okay, well, I'm trying to meet this need. That's why I'm doing or not doing something. But the, the strategy I picked is only meeting part of my needs, right? It's meeting my need for, you know, um, feeling better in the moment, but it's not meeting my need for health and it's not meeting my need for, you know, you know, pick one. So anyway, it's trying to understand that and then help patients understand that and then strategize, get clear on the needs first, then strategize. Are you, does that make sense? What I talk about with the needs? Absolutely. Okay. Under, think, the underlying needs. Yeah. yeah. I think, uh-huh. um, you mentioned it earlier too. It's, it's also raising an individual and collective awareness. So, and, and in that finding what is most relevant to a particular person at a given time. And then through that, you know, learning how to affect behavior and belief and mind frame and, um, and health, you know, impact both mental, emotional and physical health. Um, in that way. Yeah. So <clears throat> clearly the focus of your work has shifted, right? Mm-hmm. From that, I love that the quote that you read about patients come to doctors because of anxiety and doctors see patients to help them or, or treat them, treat them. Right. And it is, it's, it can be like ships passing in the night. Right. <laughs> so it's like, all right, how do we get, how do we get them on the same track, but not so that they collide, but that they can be, you know, parallel and connected. So, um, Super curious, you know, what, what are you doing these days to affect that? Yes. Yeah, so we, um, we backed out, uh, just being hyper-focused on nutrition and we have something that we created called the hands of joy. And it's basically saying that th- this model is sort of how we think about achieving joy in people's lives. And there's the left hand, which, and you want them in balance, right? There's, it's always about balance. You know, mm-hmm. that's sort of, one of the keys there. And the left hand is using the acronym uh, SNAPS, but it's the, each finger of the five fingers is part of that left hand. Of, and that's your internal world. The left hand's your internal world. SNAPS, S for sleep, N for nutrition, A for activity, P for play, and S for self, right? So, and the self is sort of like that, we haven't figured out a term that we really like, but like the mind body, you know, your internal, um, internal world from that perspective. And the goal or the way to achieve joy is to optimize the internal world enough so that you can connect and contribute to the external world, which is your right hand, right? So you have to optimize the internal world so you you can connect and contribute to the external world. The external world are basically the five fingers on your right hand are the key relationships that are most important to you. Um, And those can be different for different people, but often it's your, your partner, your children, your family unit, your extended family unit, your, your sort of work community and your, could be your, uh, friends community, could be spiritual community, but you picked your five key, uh, relationships. Uh, and, and if you can do that, if you can connect and contribute, that's to those relationships, that's what provides joy. So if you just focus on your internal world, you're sort of um, focused on survival, right? Because if you're under-resourced, you have no ability really to connect and contribute to the external world. So you want to get resourced enough. You know what I mean when I say resourced? Right? You want to get resourced enough to be able to then contribute and connect to your external world. Resourced enough means to get the right amount of sleep, sleep. have good proper nutrition, have some productive activity, right. play, play at all costs. Play. <laughs> and, and play is basically doing stuff without an agenda. Yeah. You know, creativity, running around, you know, you're just free, you know, and then the, the self and really focusing on the self and the mind, the mind body and that that is such an important piece of health and can cause, it's very clear that that can be the foundation of chronic disease. And we stumbled across that because we get people on the perfect diet, but they all of a sudden have these other issues that the diet wasn't fixing. And when you brought that all together, it was sort of a, the recipe for success. So we had to sort of broaden out from where we were, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And it's, it's changed our lives personally. Um, and it's, it's changing people's lives 
a big piece of um, how you can enhance a lot of these areas is the area of nonviolent communication um, created by Marshall Rosenberg. So um, I'm not sure how much you want to get into that, but that's another <clears throat> sort of philosophy and tool that people use because it's in the end we found it's about connection. So to connect and contribute, that's the, um, we're at a state now where people are more disconnected than ever, mm -hmm. and they don't really either they don't understand it or they're not aware of it or they don't see the value of connection, um, and that's causing people to be sick. That's causing a lot of anxiety and depression and stress, which then causes things like chronic back pain and other chronic pain. Like I love this movement to get rid, to attack the chronic opioid epidemic. All these people are in pain and let's get them off. And it's like, they're in pain, but you got to figure out why they're in pain. Don't just take pills away or give them pills. Yeah. So it's again, broadening out. I think that's also like one of the things that's so appealing about nonviolent communication is that it's really a philosophy about consciousness and awareness and intention. I think, you know, we as a society, especially here in the United States, are very compartmentalized. Like we don't, there's a loss of the notion of living the life, you know, really encompassing it. Like if you think about how we exercise, we are one of the few societies that actually has to fit in exercise. Schedule a, it. Yes, yeah, schedule a formal exercise, however often we want to do it, versus in so many other countries, that's just what they do. They're walking all day or they're playing or, you know, they're in sports, community sports, and it's part of their everyday lives. Um, and we do that with we do that with food. We do that with exercise. We do that with mindfulness. It's something that we fit into a box that we can check at the end of the day versus this is a part of my life, you know, and this is how I live my life. And this is how my neighbor lives their life. And this is our community life and, and so forth. And we're running scared, right? We're running like the, this epidemic of like separation and this idea of scarcity. You know, that's sort of fueling people like, you know, worry about myself and there's not enough. I got to get more, you know, and that is just causing more and more stress and anxiety and health problems. That then you go to the conventional system, they're doing putting you on pills and giving you treatments, you know, you know, surgeries, to, but you're not fixing the problem. And that's always been our goal is what's the problem? Really get to the problem. Yeah. That uh, striving and grasping hmm. is uh, kind of illusion yeah. because once you get there, then it's, well, what's next? And you get there and what's next? Hmm. And that's a never-ending cycle. Right. right. And that's like, what you know, oh, that's going to make me happy. I'm going to endure present pain for future benefit. Right. And it's, you just, it just never happens. It's, it never works. Yeah. We, we have an incredible tolerance and capacity to endure something today for the hope uh, that something will change tomorrow, right? And then you set up this these habitual, you know, these pathways, these neural pathways that almost make it impossible to be present anymore, because everything you did was focused on the future. Right. So you don't know how to celebrate. You don't know how to uh, express gratitude or even receive gratitude in a way that's actually healthy. You know, it's right. you don't you don't know how to just be here in the moment. You know, every time you get in the car, who should I call? What should I listen to? Should I, you know, what should I do? Like, I gotta, I gotta do something. You know, I gotta, I'm sitting on the, how many people can go to the bathroom without pulling out their iPhone anymore? You know? <laughs> there, there's a, there's this almost fear of not being able to distract ourselves, right? From yes. being yes. present each moment. Right. Right. Well, but I can't distract myself. There is something around, uh, and I've done some reading around people who take great joy and pleasure in future planning, right? Not to the point where they can't live in the present, but in imagining the future they want, that's actually quite gratifying for them. How do you do that and still be present in the moment? That's the challenge. That's where it's not grasping or striving. And it's a, and there's a balance, right? There's, there's people, and that's where you have to have self-awareness to be able to say, is this need for sort of future security? Is this like a healthy, Sort of, I you know, I got kids and I want to sort of prepare and have something. Is that is it healthy or is that how you're defining your success and worth? 
in this world. You know, and, and that's only, you can only figure that out if you've actually spent some time asking yourself the questions and, you know, looking inside yourself. Yeah, this is, this is very much, and I come across this a lot in my work around, around self-esteem. And because there's two kinds of self-esteem. There's healthy self-esteem and there's non-healthy self-esteem. <laughs> Sometimes people's self-esteem is based on all external right. reward. The recognition, acknowledgement, appreciation fills up that gap. But true healthy self-esteem is sustainable because it comes from inside of someone. Right. And that's when you, when I think about your five uh, fingers of the, of the, of the uh, left, left hand mm-hmm. is the internal, right? And that's where the, the nonviolent communication comes in and the, and the mindfulness comes in and the stress reduction, right? And it's, and it's being clear on what everybody, there's the values, the needs are universal. Everybody has them. To be aware of what, what behaviors line up with your values, right? Because the way I meet my need for fun or I meet my need for security or safety might be different than the way you want to. But I have to check inside me and say, am I meeting it? Is the strategy I'm choosing meeting my needs or not? And am I okay with, if it's not, am I okay with that right now? You know, but it's checking in and not saying my strategies are going to work for you. That's right. And the reason where I'm, there's a lot more enlightened people out there, right? There's so many, you know, than, than us. The difference though is that we are saying it's our responsibility as doctors to include this in our overall strategy for supporting patients and that a lot of the disease we see would benefit from attention in these other areas. And that is not focusing on diet is becoming more cool, you know, in the, in the medic conventional medical world. But this other stuff, you know, the mind body, there's a sort of a fringe group that might support it, but it all has to be included. Is that, does that resonate? Absolutely. And, and, uh, you guys know uh, my wife, Danise, and she's, uh, mind body practitioner, you know, acupuncturist, Dr. Oriental Medicine, as well as a licensed clinical social worker. So, and, uh, we, we, our joy, our play comes from dancing in the kitchen a lot. <laughs> That's what we do. That's our spontaneous thing. That's fun. That's great. <laughs> uh, so on the relationship side, the right hand, you sound like you were talking about if this is, this is, there's no prescribed thing here. What is your network, right? What is, what are your relationships? Whether it's work relationships, whether it's family relationships, whether it's community relationships or friendship relationships. Tell me a little bit more about how you make the, how you make the connection between the left hand and the right hand. Well, it's being, it's being aware of the relationships that are important to you and to truly get clear in your head that connecting and contributing to those relationships is what's going to bring you joy. So if you're clear there, you're sort of halfway. Then the question is, okay, well, I got all that and I believe it. Now, how do I actually connect to these people? Right? That's where nonviolent communication is, is a super useful tool. And that's what we're bringing in. We're trying to bring it into um, not only how we um, treat patients, but actually creating it. So not only as practitioners saying, hey, we're going to listen differently to our patients and we're going to our team is going to function differently because we're going to em- employ these skills and this intention and, and mindset, but also to provide that type of program for the patients to just access on their own with their own families, with their own right hand, right? And say, just by helping them figure out how to connect to their key relationships and true connection, yeah. not standing next to each other or texting each other or right. Facebooking each other, but actually true connection will make them better in so many ways, make them feel better. I, uh, I've been a uh, big fan of practitioner of and, and a coach in uh, active listening over the years, right? Which is part of the nonviolent communication. Mm-hmm. I would tell people, you know, listen like it's your best friend, right? You really have that intention. But I also recognize that in America, most people define listening as waiting for my turn to talk, <laughs> right? So it's a discipline to put aside your own agenda and actually pay attention to somebody, right? right? That's, a, that's a, a big part of it. And to, to tune into where they're at, meet them where they're at, yeah. and, you, and you work with them. In NBC, there's actually, I like the way they think about connection, right? In the conventional way people communicate, it's, I have all this stuff, I want to say it, I decide in the moment I want to say it, and then I just go for it and I start saying it. And they're not present with it, they're just trying to get it all out. And message sent is assumed to be message received, right? So then, isn't that an illusion? Yeah. <laughs> That's for sure. And in NBC, it's more like there's not just that one point. There's not only there's you, 
There's the other person you're talking to. So there's a, that's the second point. The, the, the quality of the connection is the third point. And then the bigger sort of area that encompasses everything, right? That's the, the fourth point, right? And to be aware of those four points instead of just the one. And then every moment you're checking in on the quality of all four of those points and pivoting if you need to pivot, right? That it, it's, but you have to be so present to do that. But the quality of the connection is 4x what it was when you're just dumping from your mouth. Yeah. So then it's self-sustaining, right? It's, it's very fulfilling when you can make that connection. And that actually just hearing you is meeting my needs. I have the need for connection. I have the need to for providing empathy. I value empathy. So by doing that for you, all of a sudden it's meeting my needs too, even though I'm not necessarily being, quote unquote, helped by what we're talking about because it's about you. That is, to me, the essence of, of, of a lot of the value coupled with the ability to honestly express. I think a lot of people have so much going on inside them, some of which they've habitually repressed for so long that they can't even, they're not even aware of it anymore. But it, um, just to be able to say, this is what's alive in me in the moment. And I trust that if I share it with you, I'm going to do it in a way that's connected and caring. And even if it stimulates some pain in you, I'm doing it in a way that aligns with my values and then I'll be there to empathize with your pain. That is life-changing, but super hard. Yeah. Super hard. Mm -hmm. And it is it is a lot like that old Roadrunner cartoon where you step out over the cliff with the expectation that when I take that risk <laughs> to have that kind of communication, something yeah. will be there to support me to do that. Right. right. And every time that happens, it further reinforces, yeah, this works. I can trust this. Yeah. So... Well, this is wonderful. I, I'm just, you know, I'm tickled, actually. Uh, curious about the future. You guys know the future by any chance? <laughs> <laughs> We're very focused on the present. Oh, now. yeah, Daddy, okay. No, I'm, I'm kidding. Um, what's, 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 what, what do you look ahead towards in terms of your own practice and, and the work that you guys are doing, what you're trying to, how you try and show up in the world? We want to try and sort of scale bring you know scale the model of trying to bring people more joy and and happiness in their lives and not just happiness i used to say just happiness but also the ability to enjoy the unpleasant emotions too right um so just that i guess the the best word is actually to get that expansive feeling instead of feeling contracted to sort of slow down and help people um, be present and connected and at whatever we do, we want to focus on, you know, the connecting more and doing less. You know, if you had to pick between connecting and doing, it's connecting. And but we didn't value that, you know, 10 or 15 years ago the way we do now. So, so we're trying to figure out, okay, so how do we do all this? How do we teach people who every single person would benefit from it in their own lives? And then how do you teach them to do it in their practice? You know, so we have a, a clinic. And then how do you teach the patients that, even if you're doing it, how do you teach all the patients to do it? And then how do you support them continuing to do it in their lives? So we want to, that's what we want to do is figure out, you know, the perfect is the enemy of the good. But every day we're trying to be to figure out a way to do that more effectively and on a broader, broader scale. And I think that's what excites me too is, you know, when we first got into it, it was diet is what's going to take you from surviving to thriving. Mm -hmm. And now it's, there are so many more components that that are part of that effort to really get people. So many of us are focused on the day-to-day -day grind, on really surviving, and not even knowing how expansive thriving can feel. And again, that can be on a continuum, um, depending on where people are at and what kind of effort they can put into that expansion. But that is really resonating for me is this concept of growth and space, just having more slowing down, allowing for more space, more opportunity for growth, more expansion in our lives. And through that, um, you know, whatever unfolds for each individual person. But we're, you know, it's so hard to do when there is no break and it's constant stimulation and it's the date, you know, hopping from this thing to just like you said, the constant distraction right. of one thing to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. There's no opportunity to even explore, you know, what is it that 
makes me happy? What is it that makes me thrive? What is it that excites me? And, and so, you know, that, that really jives for me. Yeah. And, and you don't even have to have, like me and Alona are the furthest from perfect in these areas, right? I mean, we, our kids make it very clear to us. We have, a lot, <laughs> we have a lot of work ahead of us still, right? But there's something about knowing in your heart that you are going in the right direction for, for us at least, right? And that it feels so good. And when we share it with other people, they all of a sudden like, we want to go with you. You know, and we don't know if we're all going to go this way 10 years, we're going to be here, but we know we're heading together and we're going in this general direction. And it's sort of like just knowing, getting clear that there's the hands of joy, right? And getting, just getting clear that that exists and, and then getting clear on what your key relationships are and getting clear that there's, you know, needs underneath your impulses, right? If you can just get clear on that, even not even change anything, you feel better. Right. So it's almost like when you have pain in your body, you don't know where it's coming from. And all of a sudden you get a diagnosis and you're like, there's some relief there. Right. You don't you haven't changed what was going on, but you still feel that relief. And that's I think so many people now just need a little bit of relief because they're so scared that, you know, I'm working my butt off. I don't really love my job. You know, I wish my, I had a closer connection to my wife or, or husband or partner and I'm not. I'm not feeling it. I don't know what to do, you know, and I really like to grow old with this person, but I'm feeling actually worse and less connected than I was 15 years ago or whatever. You know, um, my kids, I'd really like to be closer and more connected to my kids. I wanted them to share and open up with me. I don't know how to get them to open up. In fact, I don't even know what to do when I'm sitting next to them, you know, other than ask them how their day was. You know, so all of a sudden you, they're, they're feeling alone. They're not even sure they can admit that they have this pain, let alone what are they going to do with it. And then if they do admit it, is someone going to try and change it or give them advice when they don't really want advice right now? So if a, if a doctor could start including that, you know, all of a sudden it's like, wow, you know, this is what's going on in your life right now. You know, it's just, to me, that just feels good. It feels expansive. And that's what I think people are searching for. They feel contract. I think that expansive is probably the better word if I had to get, if I had to, there's almost like a pressure release valve. Yeah. Once you recognize the dynamic what's going on, as you said, just getting a diagnosis, all of a sudden, it gives a relief there, right? How do you get from survival to thrival, right? How do you escape the notion of economic slavery? All these things that people in our technologically driven 21st century industrialized world that we many of us live in, that's what we're challenged with all the time. Hmm. So what I'm hearing from you guys is, hey, you know what? There's a way to access joy from the inside out, yes. right? To, to connect with it through that left hand and then make the connection right. with the right hand in your community. And that's where true joy is going to come from. Right. And then you're like this, you know, it's like that is it. If you're trying to get joy from the external world, you're just going to keep trying and you're never going to get it. You know, it's just short lived. Yeah. And have yeah. you heard of the, um, the ACE study, by any chance, the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study. I've not. It's, uh, it was done actually in San Diego with through Kaiser, you know, years ago. And it was basically, you know, they learned over time that, um, that there were certain, they, they basically did a survey. It was 10, 10 question survey of different adverse childhood experiences, but things that doctors really didn't talk to patients about. But it was such a deep, personal, you know, different types of abuse and, you know, sort of, unpredictable, unpredictable stress, unpredictable chronic stress. It was trying to uh, flush that out. And what they found was just by talking, first off, they found that people had more of these, of the 10 um, different types of experiences they were measuring. The more they did, the more chronic disease they had in their adulthood. So they were measuring it from childhood, wow. adverse childhood experiences before the age of 18. They found when you were in your 40s, 50s, I mean, you know, all sorts of chronic disease was connected to it. Um, so what they found though, was that not only was that, um, connection to be true, but when you took patients and you just had them go through the survey with their doctor, primary care, for instance, and went through the survey and discussed it, just discussed it, you didn't fix it, change anything that the patients felt so much better. And they actually tracked patients over the uh, next year and saw that they had 35% less doctor visits, 11% less ER visits. I mean, there was like, just from going through the survey. So my point is like, we don't necessarily have all the studies to show exactly what you need to do, but we know that there is so much low hanging fruit that we're ignoring because it's not something that we've done 
you know, it's not part of the conventional practice. It's not a, a script. Plus, we don't give doctors time yes. to actually spend with the patients. Yeah. Yeah. That's something different we do at Whole Foods. We give people right. 30 to 60 minutes yeah. and say, we want you to actually help these people heal. Don't just give them pills. And, you know, because um, you guys have toured our Achievable Health Center in uh, Culver City, mm-hmm. uh, you know, for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities and their families. And our goal is also because these people have special needs to spend an appropriate amount of time with them as they're nonverbal, mm-hmm. right? If they're very sensitive to diagnostic tools, spend the time with them for them to have a, a much better health outcome. Yeah. And it's going very much against conventional medicine. Yeah. And we're thrilled with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And a thing called productivity. Oh, yes. yeah. <laughs> highly overrated. Right. Highly overrated productivity. <laughs> I think it was John Wooden that once said, never, makes, never mistake activity for productivity. Yeah. yeah. All right? Yeah, I like that. All right. Well, on that note, I just can't thank you guys enough for spending some time uh, this afternoon with me and this uh, and our audience. I think people are going to love this, and I just want to honor you again and thank you for your time. Well, thank, thank you, you very much. Thank you. We appreciate your time. Cool. You've been a real, um, real mentor to us. I mean, just the stuff that you taught us when we thought we knew so much, <laughs> you know, and it, and it was just the beginning of really something wonderful. Yeah. We learned a lot from each other yeah. and we're still learning a lot from each other. <laughs>